My name is Jeff, and I want to welcome you today. Uh, for those of you who are at uh, any of our campuses, so grateful that, uh, that you could be with us. And for those of you who are online, whether it's uh, in your home or wherever you may be, uh, we just truly are grateful that during this season we have this means um, that we're able to connect on a regular basis. I want to go ahead and give you a heads up today. Um, not right now, but before we are done, we are going to celebrate the Lord's Supper um, together today. So I want to invite you, uh, wherever you may be, if you are a follower of Jesus, we want you to be a part of this. And I believe that's not just because Heart of Life extends the invitation. That's Jesus who extends the invitation. This is his family that celebrates this together. So again, you don't have to do it right now, but uh, maybe at home you have uh, a cracker, a piece of bread. Um, if, if you don't have juice, I mean, I'm saying even if all you have is water, it's okay. It's okay. This is so much less about the actual items. It is so much more about the heart and the meaning uh, that is involved in this. So I give you a heads up. We're going to celebrate that before we're done today. Well, we have rounded Thanksgiving, and we are headed for home, right? Now, by home, I want us to see today that I mean more than Christmas, but Christmas is what reminds us of that home. Because the Jesus that we celebrate, who came the first time, we know is the Jesus who is coming again. And when he comes again, it will be to take his family home with him. And so I'm saying that because we have arrived in our reading of Scripture in a couple of little letters. It's got a funny name to it. Paul is writing to some people in a place called Thessalonica. Weird name. So in the Bible, it's these letters to the Thessalonians. And when you get to First and Second Thessalonians, when I read them, for me, it's like rounding Thanksgiving and heading for home. Let me show you what I mean. We're going to pick it up in Second Thessalonians chapter 1, and verse 3 is where I'm going to start. Look at what the Scripture has to say. We ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, because, check this out, your faith is growing more and more, and the love all of you have for one another is increasing. Now, before we get any further, I, this is just a quick word for any of us who are a part of leading in God's family. Maybe you lead your family in your home. Maybe you lead a ministry. You lead a Bible study. You lead a life team. You lead a church. How does God measure success? Look at those highlighted words again. What, what is Paul? Your faith is growing and your love for one another is increasing. That's how God measures it. A faith that's growing and a love that is increasing. Now, I'm going to remind you today that both of those are measured in action. 
But the way I describe it is that the, the action is the front side of all of it. It's not the back side of all of it. Jeff, what do you mean? What I mean is obedience is what's up front. That, that's how faith is growing. That's how it's measured. That's how a love that is increasing, that's how it's measured. It's obedience. What's on the backside? That's the results. Now, we learned a couple of weeks ago, right? Paul taught us we plant and we water. But who brings the harvest? God does. We plant and we water, but who brings the increase? God does. And so Paul starts just saying, I'm thankful for the people of God, and he knows how to celebrate what God cares about most in his church, a faith that is growing and a love that is increasing. Verse 4, therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your, look at the words, perseverance, and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. So what we know immediately, Paul is writing originally to some Christians who are being persecuted. They are being abused in various various ways by people who are not Jesus followers. So come on, I, I want us to make sure we get this. It's not just that these people have a faith that's growing a trust in God that's growing. And it's not just that they have a love for one another that is increasing, but it's the fact that that's happening in the middle of trouble. That's happening in the middle of persecution. Now, the way I describe it sometimes is trouble is like a hinge point. It is. Trouble's like a hinge point in a lot of people's lives. There are some people like the ones that Paul is addressing originally here in Thessalonica that when they face trouble what happens in them their faith in God actually gets stronger they walk through persecution they walk through through trouble and their trust in him actually grows and they love one another even more but come on trouble is like a hinge point because there are other people and you know them you know them, they walk through hardship, they experience something of, 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 of trouble and what happens in their heart is suddenly their trust in God seems to fly out the window and they just turn inward. They just turn inward. I, I want you to notice those two things, a trust in God and a love for people, those always go together in Scripture. A relationship with God and in turn a relationship with people, those always go together. Now let me give you just my observation. My observation through this most unique year for us. There are many people who say, And I'm going to go further than that and say they even seem to act as if they do trust God through all of this. But for many of those same people, there is not currently an evidence 
of a love for people that's growing. In other words, I think in a lot of situations, what's happened is this situation of isolation has led a lot of people to stop looking daily at the needs of others. Now, I, I get it. It's a challenge. You're like, Jeff, how, come on. This is our, this is our situation. Uh, isolation is just a part of where we are. I'm reminding you that we live in a day that we are blessed with more means of communication than has ever been possible in the history of the world. And the mission of the church is never a sideline issue, ever. So our main priority right now is still the main priority that it's always been. It is the mission to which God has called us that our faith, our trust in him might grow and that our love for one another might continue. It just so happens right now, you and I got to figure out how to do that when everybody's tending to isolate and yet we still have ways to connect. Maybe the reason we're seeing people declare that they trust in God, but we're not seeing an evidence of their love for one another growing is that it could be that for much of the American church, we have relied a long time on programs to measure our love for others. There have been things in place that the church does that we can sign up for. And it's like, I'm a part of this ministry, and I'm a part of this ministry. And so we, we schedule it along with all the other things in our lives. We show up for a program which allows us to somehow bless somebody's life, and our love is measured. So we're in a situation where many of those programs have been ripped out from under us, right? They can't function right now in the way society is moving. If you take the programs out, then we just continue with the normal parts of our lives. But the love of impacting others, where does it happen? I'm saying all along, the way it was supposed to look is that every day we awaken with an opportunity to say, God, today, how do you want to grow my trust in you? And today, God, how do you want me to love people? God, today, who are you going to put on my heart and my mind that allows me to love them? I'm saying right now, if I ask those people, do you love? They would say yes. And in many cases, you do. The issue I'm saying is, where is the evidence, though, of that love that is growing? It's a love that may exist, but it is stagnant. Wow. Let's keep reading. Watch this. Verse 5. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right. Well, what are you saying? And as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. Here's what Paul's saying. He said, this trouble that you're walking through, these struggles that you're experiencing, that's not always a sign of God's anger. 
And right here to the Thessalonians, he's saying it's actually a sign of God's loving justice because you walking through these struggles, this is how God refines your faith. And this is how God cultivates your love that you know the faith you have and the love you have when it's growing. That means it's real and you are worthy of his kingdom. Man, if I could consistently see trouble this way. Because if we can see in our current circumstance what we find ourselves in, the struggle that takes place, if I'm simply learning that for too long in my life I have programmed an evidence of God's love, and instead, God shakes me up with all this that really he wants me to wake up every day asking God, how can I trust you and how can I love? If that alone can be seen, then even in trouble, I am encouraged because God in the midst of this stuff is doing eternal things in me. And he's doing eternal things in you. But that's not the only encouragement in this text. Check it out, verse 6. This is the part we really like. God is just, and he will pay back trouble to those who trouble you. Yes, right? God's going to pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. He assures them, that even though they're going through trouble, there's going to be a time when the tables are turned. And he said, right now there are people who are persecuting you. Right now there, there, there are people who are giving you trouble. He says, I'm telling you, he is going to pay back that trouble. And then Paul breaks down for us one of the clearest pictures that I know of, all together, something that's all together in one section of Scripture what it means for those who do not know Jesus when Jesus returns. Let me just take you through it and show you a few of these statements. Verse 7, the last part of verse 7, here's what he says. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. Here's the first thing we learn. For unbelievers, the return of Jesus means facing an unstoppable army from heaven. That's what he says. The king of the universe with the unstoppable forces of heaven, he says, are going to return, right? It's like from a long journey, he's coming back to settle accounts with the tenants of earth. And when he uses that imagery of blazing fire, It is judgment. It's judgment. And the message here is there is going to be no escape. There is going to be no place to hide. And above all, there is going to be no possibility to withstand against this army. The prophet Malachi said it this way. He said, who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire. Paul reminds us for the unbeliever, for those who don't know Jesus, there will be no defense on that day 
against an unstoppable army from heaven. Let's keep going. Verse 8. He will also punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction. Second thing we learn here is that for unbelievers, the return of Jesus means eternal punishment. Now, that shouldn't be a shock to us if we've read Jesus' words. If you read the Gospels, you get to to places like Matthew chapter 25, and, and Jesus makes it really clear that those who reject the good news of Jesus, they go away to eternal punishment, he says, while the righteous eternal life. So here's what I'm telling you, this romantic idea of there being endless mercy, of there being a tolerance for those who just keep on rejecting Jesus, that will be blown to pieces when Jesus returns. The Lamb of God is going to show up as a roaring lion of Judah. That's the picture. The same Jesus who wept over the unbelief of Jerusalem, the one who gave his life for all sinners, the second time he comes, he will come opposing everyone who has rejected that life in him. And it's clear here, this punishment, it is eternal. One more, the second part of verse 9 says, and they will also be shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. The third truth we understand is that for unbelievers, the return of Jesus means utter separation from God. Separated from his presence, separated from his power. Now, Maybe for an unbeliever, that's not, a, that's not a perceived threat, right? Because it might be an unbeliever who has run from Jesus their whole life. They've spent their whole life trying to get away from him. So to, to, to be separated from him, maybe that doesn't sound like a threat. And I, I'm trying, like, how to communicate what Paul is feeling and saying here. I, I think the best way for me to do that is to ask you to think about the person the human being that you love more than any else. And I hope that many of you who hear my voice, I hope that for many of you that means a spouse. I hope that for some of you that's your wife. For some of you that's your husband. I, for some it's, it's their children. Um, for some it may be a friendship. But I, think about that person that you love more than any other. And I'm saying that Paul is writing this as someone who loves Jesus more than that. So like you got something strong the way you love your wife. You got something strong the way you love your husband. You got something strong the way you love your kids. And there's just something in you that almost can't imagine a love that would be more powerful than that, a love that's more sincere than that, a love that wouldn't sacrifice more than that. And I'm saying Paul is writing as one who loves Jesus more than that. And the scripture tells us that that's actually how all of us should love him. 
that if we really could see who he is, if we really understand who he is, the prospect of being excluded from his presence and from his power is an absolutely unbearable thought. We could run out these three truths for three weeks, honestly. We could make a series out of just this little part of Scripture. I'm just simply asking the question today, if all that's true, if, what we, if all that's true, for an unbeliever when Jesus returns, it is an unstoppable army, an eternal punishment, and an utter separation. I have to admit to you that I don't understand how anyone who claims to know Jesus would not leverage their life. And when I say leverage their life, I mean like all of their life. If all that's true for an unbeliever, then I don't know how somebody who claims to belong to Jesus could not leverage their life, whatever the cost, for another chance for that family member, another chance for that friend, another chance even for that enemy. Because come on, I realize there are enemies, but if this is true and it's eternal, then not even my enemy do I want them to experience such punishment and such judgment. How could I not leverage my life even that an enemy might have one more chance to hear. So come on, here's my question. Who have you shared the good news of Jesus with lately? Who have you shared with lately? Because if all this is true, then even in a pandemic, (laughs) we're going to find a way. Can I remind you that Paul in chains in prison found a way to share the good news? In chains in prison. These believers in Thessalonica in the middle of persecution, they are finding a way for their faith to continue to grow as they are obedient to what God calls them to. They, they continue to see their love increase as they reach to the people around them. They find a way. Surely we can find a way. But it seems like instead that much of what's happening in a church culture in, in our particular setting is that sometimes we are more concerned with staying out of the trouble that what we really want is to just get us out of this. In other words, we want relief from the trouble. Relief. And in the trouble, we are constantly seeking ways to wow ourselves. Have you noticed that? Have you noticed that, that in the setting, what, what drives people crazy is they can't show up at the stadiums that they would normally show up at and right cheer on their teams. They can't attend the performances that they would normally enjoy, right? And so we, we, the, the wow factor, the, the, the entertainment factor, the amazement factor, I'm going to say what I'm watching people deal with mostly is we want relief and we want amazement. And we call that life. 
So watch this. Relief, amazement. Watch this. Verse 7 again. Did you see this? He says to those believers, God will give relief. God will give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. So in other words, what we learn is that for true believers, the return of Jesus means relief from weariness and trouble. That's what the word relief means here. It is from whatever is making life hard to live. But my question is, when does he say we get that? When? When Jesus does what? Returns. When he returns, that's when the relief is promised. So we look throughout scripture and we, we find moments where even the apostle Paul, I mean, this guy had it together. This guy has a faith that is growing daily, it seems. He's got a love for people that's just increasing off the chart. But this is the kind of thing that Paul will say to us. One time to the Corinthians, he makes this statement. When we came to Macedonia, we had no rest, but we were harassed at every turn, conflicts on the outside, fears within. Interesting. Again, here's a guy right in the middle of trusting God, right in the middle of growing in a love for others. But the language that he uses is, I'm in the middle of conflict, I'm in the middle of fighting against fear, I have no rest. So here's our balance. We've got Jesus who says to us in places like Matthew chapter 11, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you what? Rest. We have a foretaste of that rest as he dwells in us by his spirit. But on the other hand, we live in this world where the scripture is clear There will always be a race to run, and there will always be a fight to fight. Part of that fight is us against our flesh. We've been studying about that in prior weeks, right? Part of this will be the struggle about keeping our hope in Jesus, not not my hope in my achievements, not my hope in my possessions. There will always be this fight. But at the second coming of Jesus... The end of that struggle will be known. Everything physical and everything spiritual that threatened to make life unbearable is going to be gone and we will have relief with the Lord forever. That's going to be good. But I'm going to remind you. He said that relief comes then. Now, that kind of sounds like, man, this is negative. I mean, because the, re- the word relief here is talking about an absence of weariness or trouble. And so I want to make sure we understand that Jesus' return should not be thought of mainly as the absence of bad things, although that is good for us. But before he ends here, he also describes something incredibly positive. Let me show you what I mean. Verse 10, verse 10. On the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people. 
And I want you to check out this phrase. And to be marveled at. To be marveled at among all those who have believed. And he says, this includes you because you believed our testimony to you. Here's the lesson we learned. For true believers, the return of Jesus means being filled with joyful amazement. So it's not just that when Jesus returns, there is this relief we get because the weariness is gone and, and, the, and the trouble is gone. But there's also this incredibly positive picture that at the return of Jesus means we will be filled with constant joyful amazement. Now, one of the joys of this life is that you and I get to experience these moments of wonder or marvel when we, when we see things that are just glorious, right? We, we see things that, that just leaves us utterly amazed and speechless. I, I've tried to think back through just a smattering in, in my life, and, and I'm, I'm, man, I should be more thankful because as I'm thinking through things this week, like how many times I have just been left speechless in something wonderful that I got to experience. Even something as uh, what may seem as non-spiritual as, you know, just what you enjoy, your hobbies. I mean, I'm a sports guy. So I, I, would, I would include on some of those moments of just amazement for me. I was there in the first game of the World Series when Alex Gordon, in the bottom of the ninth, deposited a ball over the center field fence, tied up the game, and then the Royals won it in extra inning. Can I tell you, I was there when that ball left the park, and the roar that went up in that stadium was just one of those moments that made me step back and go, Whoa! Like, how do you, how would you, do you put that into words? Like, what you felt and what you heard, how do you put that into words? You can't. You can't. It's this moment of wonder. I, I would add to that any of the times that I have sat in 103,000 people in Baton Rouge and listened to some crazy Cajuns yell their lungs out. It is unlike any other sound that I've ever heard. It is probably the most descriptive picture of worship that I have ever seen in my life. Nothing held back, believe me, but a voice that is raised, an expression that is incredible, and 103,000 of them just go nuts. Now, they're not worshiping the one who deserves to be worshipped most. I'm just saying the action and the noise and the feel just leaves you going, oh my. I thought back through my life at some of the scenery that God has allowed my eyes to actually view from this world. There have been moments that I have seen mountains or oceans or deserts or volcanoes or waterfalls or reefs that have just left me Mouth open, stunned at what I'm seeing. And then there are those moments, like the day that I committed to love my wife for life. 
and the moments that I saw both my girls born. And the day that I stood in a Taiwan courtroom and listened to a judge declare that Nick is mine. And what happened in my heart in those moments? I got nothing to give you today that could anywhere near describe the amazement and wonder and awe. You ready for this? When Jesus returns, when Jesus returns and we see him face to face, all that I just described to you plus a hundred million times over is what your heart is going to try to handle forever and ever. That's good. <laughs> Come on, that, that helps in the struggle now. That helps in what I feel like I'm having to give up now. That helps on the days that I have to wake up and go, God, today I'm asking you to help me trust. And God, I'm asking you to help me find joy. Come on, that helps. That's the promise that when we see him face to face, that level of stunning marvel is going to go on and on for all of eternity. Paul said it's going to happen like this. The dead in Christ are going to rise first. And we who are still alive, we who are still left, we are going to be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. In that moment, our hearts are going to run to him, stunned, overwhelmed, amazed, and we will marvel. And Jesus' first arrival, as amazing as we sometimes see him, I mean, sometimes the miracles that he does just leaves you stunned. But I'm telling you, Jesus' first arrival, as amazing as we see him, much of his glory was veiled. And we know that because there was a day on a mountain when three of those close disciples were given a glimpse a day when Peter, James, and John witnessed as the veil was pulled back and the glory of Jesus was seen. And I will remind you, it says they <laughs> fell. <laughs> they fell on their face as though dead men. Stunning. Overwhelmed. It's the same picture we get in the Revelation when John, again, in the Revelation chapter 1, is given a glimpse of the glory of Jesus, right? So he can write it down so that we can read it. And it says that when John saw these things, he fell as though he were dead. It's not a negative thing. It's just a descriptive way of going, this is just too much. This is just overwhelming. This is absolutely amazing. Paul says it this way in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Verse 8 says, now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearance. Now, that word longed is the word in the Greek, and I'm doing this on, for a reason, agapao. Agapao, I'm going to slow it down. Agapao. 
agape. Love. Those who have loved for his. It's this word that means, look, if you love Jesus, you love his return. That's what it means. It's kind of like when I miss those folks that I love the most. We are away, right? Maybe it's a journey, it's a trip, and you just can't wait to get back to the ones that you love the most. That's the picture here. When you love Jesus to this degree, you love his appearing. If you are not in love with the fact that Jesus is coming back, I'm saying you need to pray. You need to ask that God would open your eyes to the truth of who he is from his word that you might come to truly see, to know him, to love him with all your heart. Because come on, there is nothing else that you are planning in your future that compares with the marvel and the wonder and the joy of seeing Jesus face to face. You got nothing. There's no trip you're planning. There's no right action. There's nothing that you are planning in your future that compares with the marvel and the wonder and the joy of seeing Jesus face to face. And so for those of us who have put our trust in him, when he returns, it will mean relief from every weariness, from every trouble, and he will fill us up with joyful amazement when we see him face to face. So I'm gonna keep on fighting. That's why Paul's writing to these folks. That we're going to keep on fighting even in trouble because we've read the end of the story. And one of the gifts that God gives us to keep us centered on such truth is the Lord's Supper. And that's why today I really wanted us to end our time together doing just that. I want to say it again in case you didn't hear me at the beginning. If you are a follower of Jesus, I want you to know that you are welcome at this table. And if you are joining us online, whatever you have, a piece of bread, whether it's juice or water, whatever it is, look, it's okay I invite you to be a part of this. The reason that we use the bread and the reason that we use the juice is that it represents Jesus' body and his blood. And so in a minute, in a minute, uh, really, this is going to be the last thing we do. In a minute, I, I want us to sing one more song together. And it is a song that reminds us of this story, this truth of who Jesus is and what he's done. But it is also a time that we do what the Bible says, that we examine our heart. We examine our heart. In other words, we don't come to such a moment and remember a sacrifice so great and just carry on with our lives with something that we know is just rebellion against God. We don't. So this is a moment that we come before him and we say, God, show me my heart and where I'm wrong, God, and even where I don't want to turn to you, God, help me to want to do that. 
I want to tell you a story that I think helps us understand what this Lord's Supper is about. And then we'll sing the song and then we'll take it. I want you to imagine. Imagine 12 soldiers who have been imprisoned. They've been actually imprisoned for years in an enemy camp. But somehow, along the way, word has gotten to them. Word has gotten to them from their own troops that if they could escape and be at a certain point at midnight, a helicopter would be there to pick them up. And so they went to work, they began to plan, and they were, they were able to confiscate a timed detonating device. A, a timed detonating device that would explode exactly 24 hours after being set. So they decided they're going to plant the device at the base of the fence that surrounds the camp on the night before they know it's going to go off. One of the 12, he was the one who had no wife, no children. He volunteered to be the one. He would make the attempt to plant the charge. And so on the night, he, he manages to leap over the coils of the barbed wire. He lands at the base of the fence, and he plants the charge. But he can't get back over the wire. And so as he creeps along the edge of the fence, just before he gets to the opening, the enemy spots him, and they shoot him. And he dies. The guards knew exactly the hut that this man belonged to. They, they threw his body at the door of the hut as a lesson for the other 11 prisoners. And on that night, they took his body and they buried him in a shallow grave. And in the darkness, they had a memorial service for him. They thought about his death. But in that was mingled a hope. In that was mingled an expectation. You see, this was no ordinary death. Because of this death and a charge that was planted, soon they would be released from prison and they would be reunited with the people that they love. And I'm telling you, that's exactly what this supper is like for those of us who love Jesus with our lives. Yes, it is a memorial. It is a memorial where we look back at Jesus' death and this bread, it represents his body that was broken for us. This juice, it represents his blood that was shed for us. But this death is no ordinary death because not only does it satisfy the righteous demands of God against our sin, but it is also a death that ends in a resurrection. 
No, wait. It ends with a return. You see, the sacrifice of Jesus set the charge for an explosion of his return. Are you ready? If you have never put your trust in Jesus, I beg you today. It's not about magic words. It is about a heart who calls out to him that you need his forgiveness and you need his life. Ask him for forgiveness. Declare that you want him to be the king. Call out to him, and I tell you, he hears your heart. Children of God, man, our king is coming back, but there is a mission. It's not supposed to ever be on the sideline. It is who we are called to be.